0: There are moments when sometimes I say things that add more confusion than they do clarity. And so this week, I had the question about the way I ended last Sunday's sermon on hell, how to get there, and the hope after that. And some have asked, Brad, what were you hinting at toward the end of last Sunday? You talked about hell and then seemed to suggest, hint, that everyone gets redeemed, restored, saved. And so some have asked me plainly this week, Brad, are you a universalist? And is Nexus a universalist? And of course, this has others thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about, Brad, what is a universalist? Christian universalism is defined this way. A school of Christian theology focused around the doctrine of universal reconciliation. The view that all human beings will ultimately be saved and restored to a right relationship with God. So, Brad, are you a universalist? Yes, and unapologetically so. And I will get into the unapologetic thing in a moment, but let me clear up something else with a question. Is Nexus a universalist church? No. Nexus is a Jesus path church. That's the one thing that we're committed to. And that's it. My Jesus path conclusions may look different than yours, yours different than mine. And we don't need everyone here to agree on, well, much of anything. Except the willingness to journey together on the Jesus path. Are you allowing the path to shape your life? Are you willing to follow with us in community? That is it. Boom. Welcome. And on that journey, our conclusions about heaven, hell, sexuality, communion, membership, hell, violence, war, we might end up in some very different places on all of those, and that's okay. What we're committing to here at Nexus is that we all believe Jesus is worth following and that we're good exploring this path together. Now, that can be hard to navigate sometimes. Fair enough. Nobody said it would be easy. This Tuesday night, uh, we're going to have a discussion um, around universalism. Uh, It's gonna be at Murray and James. Murray is going to uh, explain why he is not where I am. And uh, we're hoping that will lead to some interesting dialogue and some good discussion. Um, And I've always believed that, truly. The the best of sermons create a conversation, not end the conversation. And uh, so the things I say here don't need to be the things you hold. Where I'm at does not need to be where you're at. And sometimes me just hinting at certain things like universalism, it can create confusion. And sometimes teasing at things like that, it isn't helpful. So with that being said, Allow me to take you this morning on a bit of a biographical journey on how I landed as an unapologetic universalist who happens to think universalism is a more thoughtful and more biblical approach to hell and judgment than other approaches many of us know. And uh, I'll say my piece and then uh, I'm fine to disagree, but hear me out. Hell has been, I think, since childhood for me, the most pressing of issues. When I think back to early childhood memories, the the one that stands out the most is the time growing up as a child. I took in the play at our church, some production company from who knows where, uh, performed for us a version of Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. And it terrified me. It terrified me visions of people begging mountains to fall in this, it, it's still stuck in my head and, and my journey over the years has been something, but, but the reason that I state I'm unapologetic about my universalism is because in my background there's been a very big stereotype involving people who hold to universal reconciliation. And people think it's wishy-washy, it's soft, you're, you're a bit of a hippie, you can't stomach Hell and judgment, you're soft on sin, you don't take the Bible seriously, or you're even worse, you're trying to make the Bible say something that it doesn't say. And so it's often seen in certain circles that it's tickling people's ears, just giving us what we want to hear. And this Sunday is gonna be a bit, I I, I like to bring funny, you know, try to bring stories and whatnot. This is gonna be a bit more technical this morning. I want to address that because in my opinion there is no twisting the bible speaks of eternal judgment and hell and i believe in both of them full stop straight up no need there's no nuance there i think they both exist but i actually think that the evangelical view of hell is the view that does the choosing and the picking and twisting and to illustrate that i want to go dive right in to the most clear picture we have of an afterlife hell. And that's Jesus' story of the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. What do I do with that? Well, I get a little scared. It scares me because I take it at face value. I think the imperative is not so much the afterlife, but the warning right here. This is the call of the Christian. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, care for the sick, visit the prisoner. Don't, you'll go to hell. Eternal punishment. So, what's the difference between me and the person who insists on some kind of endless hell and punishment? Well, I'd say the difference is two questions. First, what is eternal punishment? And second, is there anything after eternal punishment? Now, let's start with the first question. What is eternal punishment? Matthew 25 says the wicked go off to eternal punishment. That seems to indicate the punishment is the end of the story. And I confess, I took two years of Greek. Uh, I knew some basic Greek. I lost it all. I don't know any of it. Which leaves me relying on those who do know Greek, who are best fluent in it. And here's where things get dicey. What does eternal punishment mean mean here? Sorry for the technicalities, but let's see. Martin Vincent, he explains the word eternal, aeon, is not easily translated. Aeon, transliterated aeon, is a period of longer or shorter duration having a beginning and an end and complete in itself. Young's literal translation uses it as age-during. And what this means is it makes for some very clumsy English reading, but it captures better this idea that this word means a specific duration of time dependent on the subject and context it's within. Never does it explicitly mean without end. So there's a season or time of punishment. But what does punishment mean? I'm going to rely on David Bentley Hart a lot. The word colossus originally meant pruning or docking or obviating the growth of trees or other plants, and then came to mean confinement, being held in check, punishment, or chastisement, chiefly with the connotation of correction. Classically, the word was distinguished by Aristotle, for instance, from "timoria," which means a retributive punishment only. Whether such a distinction holds here is difficult to say, since by late antiquity, Colossus seems to have been used by many to describe punishment of any kind. But the only other use of the noun in the New Testament is in 1 John 4.18, where it refers not to retributive punishment, but to the suffering experienced by someone who is subject to fear because not yet perfected in charity. The verbal form, Colossus, appears twice. In Acts 4.21, where it clearly refers only to disciplinary punishment, and in 2 Peter 2.9, in reference to fallen angels and unrighteous men, where it probably means being held in check or penned in until the day of judgment. Blah, sorry. <laughs> this is how David Bentley Hart translates this. Amen, I tell you, inasmuch as you did not do it for one of the least of these, my brothers, neither did you do it for me. And these will go to the chastening of that age, but the just to the life of that age. So, I don't disagree, there's a chastening, a chastening will occur, a punishment of some kind, fair enough, everyone at this point is on the same page, but the second question then comes up, is there anything after eternal punishment? Or perhaps a better question is this, does any good come from this punishment? Because here's the thing, there's no universalist that I know of that reads the sheep the parable of the sheep and the goats, and says, I don't believe there's a hell. No one is trying to make the Bible say what, it, what they want it to. Both people read Matthew 25 the same. The only difference is that something we believe happens outside of the story. For some, this is the end of the story. But Matthew 25 doesn't actually say it's the end of the story. And if we want to get a peek at the end of the story, we have to go looking elsewhere in Scripture does this chastening of the age, is it for a period of time? How long does it go? Is it forever? To find that out, we actually have to look elsewhere. And this is where Brad, the universalist, seems sees hope. 1 Corinthians 15. For since death comes through a man, resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in the anointed all will be given life, and each in the proper order. The anointed as the firstfruits, therefore those who are in the anointed at his arrival, then the full completion, when he delivers the kingdom to him who is God and Father, when he renders every principality and every authority and power ineffectual, and when all things have been subordinated to him, then the Son himself also be subordinated to the one who has subordinated all things to him, so that God may be all in all." David Bentley Hart goes on to say, right, that this is the clearest depiction of Paul's eschatological vision anywhere in his writings. He describes three phases in the life-giving reconciliation of all things to God. Christ's resurrection, salvation of those who already belong to Christ at the time of his parousia, present, second coming. Finally, the full completion of this universal renewal, when all things and persons will have been set in order beneath Christ, including the celestial powers. Colossians 1 In him, Christ, all in the fullness, was pleased to take up a dwelling and through him to reconcile all things to him, making peace by the blood of his cross through him, whether the things on earth or the things in the heavens. Romans 5, so then, just as by one transgression unto condemnation for all human beings, so also by one act of righteousness unto rectification of life for all human beings. For just as by the heedlessness of the one man, the many were rendered sinners, So also by the obedience of the one, the many will be rendered righteous. And we love David Bentley Hart here. He kind of pokes fun at Paul's language. says this is pretty messy grammatically. He says, this is one of those many verses in Paul more honored in the paraphrase than in the literal rendering. From the context, one can tell what he's saying, that just as one transgression, or the transgression of one man, brought condemnation to all human beings, so by one rectifying act, or the rectifying act of one man, all human beings receive a rectification of life. The actual Greek text, however, is not only so terse as to be practically a shorthand jotting but ungrammatical as well. If anything, my translation here somewhat veils the rush, brokenness of the original, but the strict proportionality of the formulation, however, is quite clear here and in the surrounding verses. Just as the first sin brought condemnation and death to absolutely everyone, so Christ's act of righteousness brings righteousness and life to absolutely everyone. Whether intentional or not, the plain meaning of the verse is that of universal condemnation annulled by universal salvation. One more. Sarah, I'm going to skip the Revelation one. Philippians 2, God also exalted him on high and graced him with the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee of beings heavenly and earthly and subterranean should bend, and every tongue gladly confess that Jesus the anointed is Lord for the glory of God the Father." These, to me, are peaks, at the end of the story. But this changes nothing about God's judgment. And for me, it should change little about our day to day. Feed the hungry. Clothe the naked. But what I'm suggesting is this, is the Bible actually presents two visions. The first is a portrait of divine prophetic judgment, as in Matthew 25. This is what a Christian lives and looks like. And then the other picture is a picture of the end. This is not only biblical, but I would say it presents a fuller, more accurate, more robust picture of reality that the Bible is trying to create and give us a vision of. And I want to suggest that for those of us who have trouble accepting that, or at least seeing it as valid, that perhaps we might ponder long and hard about the story of the prodigal son or the story of the workers. To me, the story of the prodigal son is the entirety of the gospel in one story. A child rebels from the way and love of God, goes out on his own way, has a fantastic time but finds that eventually his way of life leads him to hell in a pig pen. That's his hell. And then he returns to the father, having squandered his life and is met by love and welcome. And the older brother is angry. The older brother is angry. Why? It's not always sit well with us to think that God's mercy might be so great and abounding that perhaps people get in we don't think we'll get in. <coughs> but you might think, what about justice and what about Hitler? Hitler always comes up, always comes up in this conversation, so let's we'll get to Hitler in a second. What about justice? I'm biased here, but I tend to think an unending hell fits no reasonable concept of justice. It feels incoherent, it feels circular to me. It's often said, I've met these people in the mall, on the street corners, that sin against an infinite God requires an infinite punishment, which sounds kind of fancy, but I'm confused about the math. Sounds imaginary to me. Because I can show you the justice, as we conceive of it, we all conceive of justice, I can show you the justice of restorative punishment, that does not go on forever, but I have yet to meet in my entire life from the average person to the greatest of scholar who has ever given me a persuasive argument about how eternal torture is just. Not one. And listen, if we're going to have a proper theological discussion, then I kind of expect both sides to bring something to the table. Because what we're looking for is congruence. But this is how it usually plays out. God must send some people to eternal torment, and that's because God is just. So it's just. If you're familiar with circular arguments, that's one of them. But honestly, my question is this. What is the point of eternal torment? How is it just? In Scripture, in the Proverbs, we're given a picture of lady, lady wisdom, lady justice holding the scales of justice. Justice is about proportionality and balance, and we're witnessing this play out around the world right now. What does justice look like? How is it proportional? How does it balance out? To me, an eternal punishment shatters the very definition of justice. And listen, I'm open here, I truly am, but again, if you believe in eternal torment, hell, listen, you gotta bring something to the table and explain how that is in any way judged. Richard Beck asks, how can you believe in an internal punishment and still hold to a recognizable conception of justice? The biblical universalist vision of the afterlife rings true. Rings true for us personally. As parents, it rings true. It rings true in every sort of way. We might think and say, yes, but there must be consequences for harm. For the murderers and the rapists and the warmongers, where's the justice for the victim? I'm with you, Hello, awaits, <coughs> hell awaits. But justice is about balance and everlasting torment starts to take even the most righteous people I know, it starts to take us to some really dark territory. Richard Beck again, let me ask this question. What would God need to do to a perpetrator, torment wise, to get a victim to say that's enough? Think of the Saw movies. Is that what we want God to do, to get justice for victims, to get payback by setting up horrific and psychotic punishments for perpetrators? How far down this road do we want God to go? Hitler always comes up in these discussions, what about Hitler? No one, including Universalists, is saying Hitler's getting off easy. But here's the question, should he live in a Saw movie for eternity? At what point does this start to become grotesque? When is enough enough? What about free will? It's often here that the free will question is inserted into the conversation. Well, God will never force anyone into God's kingdom, so maybe hell is an expression of free will. The people there are the ones who want to be there. These people are, they have sentenced themselves to hell, not through the choice of God. It's a self-inflicted wound, you could say. God simply gives these people what they want, an existence without God, and that is hell, self-chosen hell. And listen, four of my theological heroes hold this vision, and I love them, and each of them would give me a good spanking when it comes to theological conversation, so I tread lightly here. C.S. Lewis, N.T. Wright, Brian Zond, last I heard from Rob Bell, though he hasn't said much about anything recently, but if he's still where he is with love wins, all four of those, those are great heroes to me, nurtured me in the faith throughout the years. All four of them would hold to we, we, hell is self imprisonment In my estimation, they get a lot right. They each get death right and they each get God right. They get death right and that death is not the end. For them, the possibility for redemption exists after death. They also get God right. God would never torture someone. So to be in hell is to choose to be there in spite of God's desire. They get all that right in my estimation, but I would humbly submit this to my four heroes. What they maybe get wrong is human freedom, free will. The first problem is something that if my old Calvinist friends could be here today, they'd be so excited with glee, because I'm going to acknowledge that they might be right on something, but... (laughs) If hell is a choice, then salvation is a choice either, and, um, well, it amounts to a work-based righteousness. If hell is a matter of choice, then so is choosing your salvation. This has always been a point my sincere Calvinist friends have made to me, and ah, I hate to admit it, but they have a good point here. If everything is about our choice, then where is the grace of God in that? Second problem is psychological. And to to put this bluntly, there's, there's a number of people today talking about how free will might be imaginary. Uh, Determined by Robert Sapolsky, fascinating book, I've only just begun it, but he's not coming at it from a faith perspective, but a science perspective. And he would just argue that our faith in free will, we might need to take it down a notch. What does he mean by that? Well, living in an age of neuroscience, cognitive psychology, brain imaging analysis, behavioral genetics, we're coming to see that so, so many of our choices are the product of, of genes, and environment, nature, nurture, culture, reinforcement, Sometimes, if we got enough sleep the night before. There's a whole lot of context and history behind each choice we make freely. Cultural history, family history, genetic history, personal history. In thinking about hell, we want to blame the person, not God, and free will allows us to get it there, and it is a possible solution, I get that. I just don't think our free will is as rock solid as we might imagine. Now, that alone is as briefly as I can why describe why I'm a Christian universalist. Those are the reasons. And agree with it or not, what I hope is perfectly clear is that this is sound, biblical, fits well within however one might want to define orthodoxy. But none of the reasons I've given so far are why I'm a universalist. All of those things help, they add weight, but none of those things are the crux of my own apologetic. So what is? The doctrine of universal salvation is not primarily attractive to me because it solves the problem of hell, it's attractive to me because it solves or at least addresses the problem of pain and suffering. And as far as I have seen, universalism is the only doctrine, Christian or otherwise, is the only doctrine in all religion, in any ideology, that takes the problem of suffering seriously. And if you get that, you will get why I'm a universalist. If you get the problem of pain and suffering, you might not agree with it, but you'll get it. How so? Jürgen Moltmann, great theologian, writes this. It is in suffering that the whole human question about God arises. For incomprehensible suffering calls the God of men and women in question. The suffering of a single innocent child is an irrefutable rebuttal of the notion of the almighty and kindly God in heaven. For God who lets the innocent suffer and who permits senseless death is not worthy to be called God at all. The theism of the almighty and kindly God comes to an end on the rock of suffering. and I think you either get that or you don't. Because this question is not theoretical about what may or may not happen in the end. It's happening right now. In my estimation, universalism is the only doctrine that at least attempts to answer the tragedy of human suffering and the innumerable children suffering throughout history and even today and now. It's the only doctrine that tries to answer the question of suffering with the rebuttal, but in the end, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I must rely on Richard Beck here again. It's not really a question at all, in the sense of something we can ask or not ask, like other questions, It's the opened wound of life in this world. It is the real task of faith and theology to make it possible for us to survive, to go on living with this opened wound, The person who believes will not rest content with any slickly explanatory answer to the theodicy suffering question, and he will also resist any attempt to soften the question down. The more a person believes, the more deeply he experiences pain over the suffering in the world, and the more passionately he asks about God and the new creation. Innocent suffering is the opened wound of life, and the real task of faith and theology is to make it possible for us to survive, to go on living with this opened wound." Kristen always says to me, why are you watching the news? It's so sad and depressing. I feel it. This world is just, it's suffering. And even closer to home, uh, our family has experienced two suicides this fall. One, two, two weeks ago, a 12 year old girl. Her siblings in my children's classroom a family, a community, a school devastated, a 12-year-old girl, that is, life is suffering. My mom always said it was a very sensitive boy. And I still feel that. And I can't reconcile my own journey with faith without going there, because it's the only thing keeping me in We talk about deconstruction. My journey of deconstruction started decades ago, but this was crux. This was so huge for me. I don't understand how we can worship God when there's so much suffering in this world. But ultimately, I come to agree with Dostoevsky. Simple. I believe, like a child, that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humility, humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. That in the world's finale, the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes of humanity, for all the blood that we've shed that will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Let me close with Richard Beck and ask the band to come. And I don't mean this to be combative, but I echo Richard Beck. Now here's the deal, you either get that or you don't. And if you don't, well, I'm sure you're a very nice and devout person, but you'll never understand why I believe in universalism. Listen, I don't need everyone to agree with me. I don't need us all to be on the same page. But I can only teach and preach from where I am, and I hope it creates conversation. I don't need us all to agree, but I can only speak from where I'm at. And the goal is always charitable, generous conversation that hope enriches us. At the end of the day, I must echo Luther. Here I stand, I can do no other.